Again, Gillian McIntyre from the Education Department. And welcome to the last in our series of six lectures on Catherine the Great. Sadly, I think, by some of the comments of some of you have been making coming in. First, I would like to thank the sponsor, the Catherine Society, Women Inspired by Catherine the Great. At the last lecture, somebody came up to me and asked me about the Catherine Society, and I told her I would find out about it and took her phone number and almost immediately lost it. So if she's here, if she would like to come up to me again, because I know there is a member of the Catherine Society here who might be prepared to give a little more information. Um, I'd like to welcome Professor Richard Wartman. Wonderful story. He arrived at the airport, and we always send a driver. And the driver in this instance just had a sign that said, Richard. I, th I think that's a lot. <laughs> welcome to laid-back Toronto. To introduce Professor Richard Wartman, I'd like to ask Christina Casilia, the European curator here and co-curator of the exhibition upstairs. Well, I'm glad to see such a wonderful turnout, but again, as, as are many of you, I'm very sad to see this lecture series come to an end because it also marks the end, beginning of the end of the exhibition. Um, but we couldn't go out on a better note than we're going to this evening. Um, I, I feel sure. I encountered um, Richard Wartman, who I'd certainly known of. I'm, I'm a graduate of Columbia University where Richard is historian, but I had known of him, but I certainly didn't study Russian history as a graduate student. Little did I know it was in my future. Um, I wished I had, but I encountered Richard's work for the first time personally while reading an essay of his titled Texts of Exploration and Russia's European Identity in the catalog for the New York Public Library's uh, exhibition in 2003, um, Russia Engages the World, 1453 to 1825. And in about a page, I knew I had to find everything else he'd written that might pertain to this exhibition and promptly um, got it out on long-term loan from Robarts and never looked back. Um, while museum curators, I think, in general, uh, at least the art historical variety, um, usually approach visual culture, particularly that dealing with old master paintings and sculptures, um, as a world and an end, really, unto itself. We obviously attempted to do something different, very different, with this exhibition. Um, and thus it seemed entirely appropriate, I think, to invite as a speaker an eminent historian um, to contextualize visual culture uh, in a way that most of the rest of us as speakers, I'm th thinking about here, have not done. And no one is more qualified to do this than Richard Wortman. Richard is Bryce Professor of History at Columbia University, and he specializes in the history of Imperial Russia. Um, after completing his undergraduate and graduate work at Cornell and the University of Chicago, Richard taught at the University of Chicago and then at Princeton University before coming to Columbia in 1988. His publications include The Crisis of Russian Populism, The Development of a Russian Legal Consciousness, translated into Russian, I might add. And his most recent books, um, if you can get them, um, I've had one of them out for, one of these volumes out for as long as, since I've discovered it. Um, and you'll, those of you who've actually read the labels and the text upstairs, when you do encounter these two volumes, you'll see that I used them 
quite a bit. They were really looking over my shoulder, if you will, while I was writing the text for this exhibition. Uh, they were really my constant companions all summer, are known as, we just call it scenarios around here, but scenarios of power, myth and ceremony in Russian monarchy. Volume one is from Peter the Great to the death of Nicholas I. That came out in 1995, has also been translated into Russian. Volume two from Alexander II to the abdication of Nicholas II came out in 2000, has also been translated into Russian and was awarded the George L. Moss Prize of the American Historical Association, a very prestigious prize indeed. Um, In these two volumes, which uh, any of you, many people have asked me for further reading, and these are often the books I recommend, um, since this is a historical exhibition, these volumes really present a fascinating study of the principal myths, uh, symbols, and rituals of the Russian monarchy um, that really explains sort of the soul and the character as well as the longevity, if you will, of absolute monarchy in Russia. Um, And in the process, really provide us with a rather extraordinary look at the Russian imperial court, which is something I was really after, trying to get a feel for that, coming to this as a complete outsider. Um, And both volumes discuss in detail the extravagant ceremonies, um, the celebrations, all of this based on newspaper accounts, on... um, poetry, prints, uh, engravings, um, the kind of things that art historians love, people using as visual source material. Um, And in the end, it really provides, the books really provide us with a view of the cultural idiom, the the kind of thing that is very hard to find unless it's in a single volume, but they're they're really magisterial studies. Um, And Richard has just completed, in fact, and I believe it's coming out this spring, a single volume In February, I'm sorry. In February, a single volume edition of Scenarios of Power. So we should look forward to that. And right now, Richard continues to work on representations of imperial power in the 18th and 19th centuries and has begun research on the subject of Russian texts of exploration. So I think we're in for a very um, wide-ranging and exploratory new look at Catherine this evening. So welcome to Richard. The magnificent works that we see on display at the gallery represent more than a glorification of Catherine, her grandeur, and dedication to civilization. Uh, They also represent a visual political statement rendered on canvas and bronze and stone that elevated the monarch's image and designs and lent lent, uh, all these modes resonance and meaning. Most important, art cast the empress in an ongoing myth of empire, elaborate narratives revealing her heroic exploits to advance the culture, institutions, and well-being of Russia while promoting the expansion of its border uh, and its growing might. Now, The first thing I'd like to say is that Catherine did not invent the myth of empire, the Russian myth of empire. She adopted it, transformed it, pursued it, and presented it in her own way, but she did so within the parameters of that myth. So it's misleading, I think, 
to describe a ruler, not only Catherine, but any ruler, only in terms of his or her reign, as happens in many biographical studies. Rulers work within an inherited culture of rule, government practice, symbols, and ideas. In Russia, in the case of Russia, this culture was defined by a myth of empire, and I would like to begin with a brief discussion of the evolution of this myth to provide uh, what we can call a historical context that framed the representation of Catherine as sovereign. As absolute monarchy emerged in Russia from the 15th through the 18th century, it followed the pattern of Western monarchies in presenting itself as an empire. In early modern Europe, the notion of empire evoked claims to the heritage of the Roman Empire and the principle of uncontested dominion uh, embodied in ancient Rome. The kings of England and France in the 16th and 17th centuries assumed the mantle of empire emperor to advance their claims to absolute sovereignty against the resistance of feudal lords and the Roman Catholic Church. They presented themselves with rhetoric and imagery that recall the emperors of the Roman Empire. However, as they consolidated their authority, incorporating aristocratic privileges and local state organizations, the rulers of England and France settled for the title of king. King designated the rule of an aristocratic and middle-class society uh, that was beginning to take on the features of an incipient nation. The Russian development was somewhat different. The princes of Moscow claimed the heritage of the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium. Symbols and imagery of empire announced the equality of Muscovite princes with the monarchs of the West. In the late 15th century, uh, Tsar Ivan III introduced his own imperial seal to match the seal of the Holy Roman Empire, a double-headed eagle, which was also the seal of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, a crowned double-headed eagle with lowered wings. He married the Byzantine princess, Sophia Polyologus, who had been residing in Rome and had Western artistic tastes. He then set about constructing cathedrals and palaces that would lend his capital a monumental grandeur. Ivan III assumed the titles of Tsar from the Greek Caesar and autocrat uh, Samadirjits uh, from the Greek Autocrata, and he declared himself a monarch by using the term autocrata. He declared himself a monarch independent of other earthly authorities. My point here is that the czar, the Russian czar from the start, for him, supreme imperial sovereignty represented the only true sovereignty. In 1489, Ivan III even rejected the offer of the title of a king when it was offered by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III. He was to be addressed as czar and emperor, not as king. The title of king implies subordination to a higher authority, in this case the Holy Roman Emperor, and power also confined to a specific national territory. During the 16th century, the Russian czars presented themselves as emperor, and the 
verbal and visual representation of their authority proclaimed their imperial standing. So an imperial consciousness represented a central feature of the mentality and ideology of Russian monarchs from the 16th through the 20th century. For Russian rulers, empire meant unlimited power over the social groups of the state, not only the nationalities, but the social groups of the state. The Russian nobility lacked the tradition of feudal rights and autonomy. They owed their standing, wealth, and influence to service to their sovereign. Imperial favor brought rewards of lands with serfs, large loans, and access to clientele networks that extended to provincial Russia. Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible's conquest of the Tartar Khanate of Kazan in 1552 and the Tartar Khanate of Astrakhan in 1556 became a process of imperial expansion and the assimilation of adjacent territories and peoples that would continue through the 19th century. As the empire grew to include non-Russian areas such as the Baltic provinces, the Cossacks, the Muslim Khanates, Georgia, and other areas, the nobilities entered the service of the Russian emperor, forming a multinational elite. Greater Russia, the term Russia began to be used in the 16th and 17th century, encompassing what was the old term Rus, Rus indicating now just the Russian heartland, the Russian center of the Russian Empire. And that Russia became the term that was used uh, through this period. In 1721, Peter the Great assumed the Western title Imperator, uh, meaning emperor, uh, and the word Imperator made clear his domination both of the Orthodox Church and at the same time expressed the European culture and institutions that he wished, goals that identified him with the Roman imperial imagery of the West. From Peter's reign, the assertion of the Russian monarch's imperial pretensions and prowess and his Western character became essential to his wielding of power. Peter displayed his imperial role in the original sense of imperator, military leader, the conqueror, he celebrated his, vi- celebrated his victories over the Turks and the Swedes with Roman-style triumphal entries into Moscow, the Russian armies marching through the streets of the capital with Peter appearing first as an officer, later as a leader. They marched under Roman arches decorated with classical symbols. Peter then built his own capital, capital St. Petersburg, a European city far from Moscow, elevating him and future rulers above the populations as distant and sovereigns whose power had been legitimized by the action of force. Peter's triumphs and his new capital were immortalized in numerous engravings. The ceremonies revealed a narrative of conquest, elevating the Russian monarch and his elite as deliverers and saviors of the fatherland. Throughout the history of Russian monarchy, neither respect for earlier tradition nor divine sanction was deemed sufficient to warrant the exercise of absolute imperial power. Rather, ceremonies, celebrations combined with 
representations in word, art, and architects evoke the ruler and the members of the elite as coming from the beyond, as gods descending from an empyrean or heroes arriving from afar. They evoked what Friedrich Nietzsche called the pathos of distance. Each ruler ascending the throne assumed a specific role in the myth and redesigned the narrative into what I have called his or her scenario of power. The scenarios presented the myth in terms of the ruler's conception of rule, personal tastes, as well as the cultural and political circumstances of the particular time. The principal ceremonies of the monarchy elevated the ruler and his elite. Triumphal entries, Olympian celebrations of rejoicing in majestic palaces, parades stretching across squares, all of these showed the emperor and the elite endowed with a charisma of absolute dominion. They were reproduced on the printed page, in engravings, and on canvas, placing the emperor and his elite in the category of those subjects worthy of artistic idealization. In 1722, Peter the Great issued his succession law, the first in Russian history. He did so in order to remove his son Alexei, who he regarded as errant and incompetent, uh, from the succession, and he proceeded by having Alexei murdered, of course. This law replaced primogeniture, which was a dominant practice before 1722 with designation by the reigning monarch. Peter explained his law, he explained all his laws because he wanted to show how reasonable they were, uh, and he, he claimed, said he cl uh, acted out of, quote, solicitude for the integrity of the state. This was the purpose of the law. This was going to replace the old hereditary pattern. He commanded that, quote, the ruling czar always have the freedom to designate whom he wishes and to remove the one who has been designated. Peter's succession law announced the primacy of state utility, the welfare of the state over the dictates of tradition. It provided the conquest motif with a utilitarian rationale. The sermons, odes, and festivals that inaugurated subsequent reigns portrayed new rulers as benefactors who, like Peter, had subdued the forces working for personal interests against the welfare of all. These scenarios presented the rulers as godlike saviors of the realm, the emanations of Astraea, the virgin goddess whose return inaugurated an era of universal justice. The practical effect of Peter's law was to leave the succession clouded by doubt. Peter himself designated no one. Uh, the story, uh, which may be apocryphal, is on his deathbed. He said, I will, I want to appoint, and then he passed away. In the half-century after Peter's death in 1725, aspirants to the throne called upon regiments of the gods to decide the outcome of struggles for the throne. At Peter's death, his spouse, the Empress Catherine I, ordered out the gods' regiment. Similar scenes opened the reign of Empresses Anna Ioannovna in 1730 and Peter's daughter Elizabeth Petrovna in 1741. 
The guards, regiments, and the court elite advanced the interests of the entire nobility in defending an alliance with the crown that lasted until the accession of Tsar Paul in 1796. From 1725 until 1796, Russia was ruled by empresses except for the brief interludes of the reign of Peter II, 1727 to 30, the infant Tsar Ivan VI, October to December 1741, and, of course, Peter III, December 1761 to June 1762. It's no accident that women rulers proved so dominant, for only they could claim to defend Peter's heritage without threatening a return of his primitive fury. Empresses served as exemplars both of the cathartic force and disarming mildness and love, reflecting a classical conception of the identity of the sexes and sexual ambiguity. The aspirants to the throne claimed to be taking power in order to advance the general welfare, and the general welfare came to mean the advancement of the interests of the Russian nobility. Peter's secular rationalist scenario of power was recast during the 18th century to express the harmony between sovereign and nobility. Accession decrees and coronations presented the empresses as benefactresses of the realm. But while Peter exercised what Norbert Elias described as the leadership of the conqueror, the empresses of the 18th century also epitomized the conservative rule of the later stages of absolutism. Rather than compel the nobility to sacrifice for the benefit of the state, they maintain their position in a stable system by manipulating the relations between the great families, disposing of honors, and skillfully exercising intrigue and fear, the monarch doing this uh, to keep the nobility down. Most important, they accepted and entrenched the system of serfdom, ensuring the nobility almost unlimited control over their serfs. So there were two aspects to the empress's image. The preserve of a system of serfdom, they still played the role of conquerors. The initial shows of force at the opening of their reigns set them within the narrative of the monarch seizing the throne in order to advance the utility of the realm. The demonstration of force was a symbolic requisite of enthronement, revealing the empress as the possessor of unbridled authority, one who had the power to act on behalf of the general good without regard to the scruples of the previous ruler or their cliques. Each seizure of power, therefore, was not concealed, but publicly enshrined in public statements and displays as a heroic act. Accession manifestos justified the coup, the empress appeared at the head of God's regiments. Paintings glorified the show of force. The empresses presented themselves as perpetuators of Peter's work of transformation. When Catherine II deposed her husband, the emperor Paul Peter III, in 1762, she followed the pattern of the myth. She seized power in a coup, leading God's officers, several of whom were or were, would become their lovers, her lovers, to seize the throne. She had no claim to the throne. She was a usurper, an open perpetrator of violence and conquest. The act of violence was openly announced as an episode in the enactment of the myth. It was displayed for all to see and celebrated as an act of renovation. Indeed, the display was an essential and constituent part of her assumption of power. 
the paintings that we see of the events of Iran were produced close to the time of the events. Uh, they were meant to publicize, emphasize, and mythologize the significance of what happened. Now, Catherine, uh, okay, we can now start the... Uh, Catherine uh, was not only elevated to power by the gods' regiments, she showed herself as one of them. Paintings uh, depicted her in the uniforms of the original elements of Peter the Great, uh, the, uh, as well as others, the Semyonovsky and the, uh, primarily the Priobrzensky. And here she is uh, in a typical portrait of the time, but uh, one of the greatest by the Danish painter Ericsson. Unfortunately, we don't have this in, uh, in our exhibition, uh, but we do have Ericsson's uh, mirror portrait uh, starting it out. Uh, and here she's in the uh, uniform of the uh, uh, Semyonovsky regiment holding uh, a sword, uh, showing herself as one of the uh, one of those who are uh, who are using violence to seize power. Uh, so we we have this uh, this this kind of um, this kind of dual uh, sense of her sexuality here, uh, something that she maintains uh, during uh, during her entire reign. Uh, here she is uh, on her way to um, to Peterhof to seize and depose Peter the Third. Uh, and during her reign, she maintained this, uh, this connection. Uh, and she uh, appeared often in uniform, or she had robes, uh, uh, robes made that, uh, that, um, uh, that utilized the, the materials and the designs of the various uh, of the guards' regiments. This is one, one is, for, is based on the Priobrzezinski uniform. Uh, it also uh, has um, uh, widened uh, um, armpits and sleeves uh, to give it a Russian character. Uh, and we see right at the beginning her use of clothing to establish identity with different groups uh, to, uh, to show herself in different ways uh, as someone uh, who is both a member of the Guards Regiment and connected with Russian women, all of this in the absence of any claims to the throne. Now, it was not sufficient to present the victory, as on previous occasions after Peter the Great, shows of acclaim and rejoicing by the people, and particularly the noble elite, had to confirm uh, the great benefits promised by the seizure of power. So acclamation uh, became a second moment in the seizure of uh, power, and this also appeared in paintings, in encouraged, of course, by her. Uh, and here we have the, um, the painting of her uh, uh, at the steps of the uh, Kazan Cathedral. Uh, this, which the, the Kazan Cathedral was the, uh, the main cathedral of, the, of Russian rulers all the time. They, whenever a great event, whenever a czar went off to the... Uh, uh, to the wars, uh, they would uh, be blessed by the Kazan uh, Mother of God, the icon, uh, and on important state, uh, important personal occasions, they would go there. Well, this is not the Kazan Cathedral that was built later uh, in the, that looks like St. Peter's. This is the Kazan Cathedral of the uh, of the 18th uh, 18th uh, 
century, and we can see Catherine there, uh, surrounded by here God's officers of the Ismailovsky uh, regiment, the first to uh, pledge loyalty to her as empress before she went off to Peterhof and did the deed, uh, the deed of conquest, the act of violence uh, that the conqueror um, is able to bring about uh, because of superior rights he claims. Now, uh, on the, the way back, uh, there is a picture uh, uh, in both of the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the pictures. Uh, we see uh, people on the side uh, who are uh, exclaiming uh, exclamations. Uh, the, uh, this is the return from, uh, 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 from Peter Hoff, and here it's as if it's a mass that's a mass of uh, a greeting. Uh, this is not necessarily when you see people you know, ra- raising their hands, presumably with great jubilation. This doesn't mean that any of this happened this way, of course. Uh, the, uh, the, from what we can tell, it was a rather quiet um, reception, uh, and uh, most people didn't, uh, didn't say anything, but, but the, this had to be portrayed uh, as a kind of popular event, uh, justifying her seizure of power after the terrible despot uh, who he, she claimed was her husband. Uh, she presented herself as the, from the start as the deliveratrix, the savior of Russia uh, from the abuses of the previous ruler. And this was set forth clearly in her accession manifesto uh, which uh, was never introduced into the complete collection of laws, uh, its view of monarchy uh, being out of keeping uh, with the conservatism of the 19th century. Her accession manifesto detailed the desperate situation she claimed and, and necessitated the act of violence. She declared that monarchical power, quote, unbridled by kind and altruistic qualities, turned into evil with destructive consequences. The fatherland trembled, she claimed, seeing, quote, a sovereign and ruler who slavishly obeyed all his passions before he began to think of the well-being of the state entrusted to him. The manifesto accused him of hatred for the fatherland. He had no traces of the Greek Orthodox Church, and in fact, he did have have sympathies with Lutheranism. Had shown contempt for religion, its rights and icons, and had planned to begin the destruction of churches. Most important, he had tried to corrupt everything accomplished by Peter the Great, has scorned laws and justice, squandered state funds, begun costly and bloody wars. And his strict Prussian discipline that he had introduced in imitation of Frederick the Great prompted the charge that he had, quote, conceived a hatred for the gods' regiments and had thrown the organization of the army into disarray. Well, some of this was true and some of it, of course, was exaggeration. At any rate, the gods' regiments did not like him, in part because of the new Russian uniforms they had to wear. The two moments of the coup were memorialized in the medal struck for the the coup. The face of um, of the medal... Uh, depicts Catherine in her helmet as a formidable bellicose Minerva. And this, of course, is, is a form that you're familiar with from the, uh, uh, from the exhibition. Uh, Catherine assumed the aspect of Minerva, just as she assumed the aspect uh, uh, of Russian, uh, taking on the appearances, 
uh, in this way showing the protean character uh, of the gods and goddesses of antiquity, taking on the form uh, that was necessary. Uh, and uh, one of the many uh, many examples of this is the uh, uh, is the bust of Aji. Uh, it's on the uh, cover of the Minerva, the bellicose Minerva, uh, with a helmet uh, and uh, with a strong hard face, the face you see of Catherine in uh, the Erickson's mirror. The reverse of the accession medal shows Catherine receiving a crown from a kneeling allegorical figure of Petersburg, and the presentations uh, of her accession emphasize, as we saw, this popular support. It It showed the love her subjects had shown her. And the word love took on special meaning in the rhetoric of Catherine's uh, scenario. You don't see it in uh, in Peter's reign at all, and you don't see it very little in Elizabeth's. It becomes a metaphor for the affection between subjects and a ruler who had taken wise and audacious steps for their good despite her lack of hereditary or other claims to the throne. The love indicated that she wished to evoke Affection, not fear or awe, as Peter had. Love became a light motif from the beginning of Catherine's reign. Uh, it, it greeted Catherine's act of deliverance, beginning a new golden age, and during her reign, her relations with her servitors were portrayed in terms of affection. That's the way she justified her various laws. Love suggested inner dispositions that motivated the external plays, uh, displays of joy and exaltation. And this also suggested a new type of rule informed with the sensibilities of the Enlightenment. It was ruled by humane feelings, if not by institutional guarantees. The monarch would reign with benevolence and care because it was in her heart to do so. Her subjects would show their appreciation with displays of love that confirmed her right to rule. Love described what purported to be an independent prompting rather than an orchestrated response. And and she used this to evoke all forms of sympathy that would define particularly the relationship between the throne and the nobility, between the throne and the leading bureaucrats, uh, and the the throne and uh, and state uh, servitors. As the Russian nobility grew to include the elites of the newly acquired territories, professions of love expressed a devotion that united noblemen of all parts of the Russian Empire directly to the Empress. The manifesto of July 7, 1762, announcing her coronation, declared that the entire world that can, can see that zeal for religion, love for our Russian fatherland, and also the fervent wish of all our loyal subjects to see us on the throne and through us to receive deliverance from those dangers that have occurred and even greater ones that are about, were about to occur. Catherine did not tarry with her coronation, holding it less than three months after her accession. In September 1762, in the Assumption Cathedral of Moscow, where Russian rulers had been crowned since the first coronation, which took place in 1547, of Ivan the Terrible. Uh, The coronation... Her crowning and anointment, her receiving communion behind the imperial doors with the clergy at the Assumption Cathedral in Moscow, gave her the blessing of the church and invested her with a sacred 
equality in the eyes of the people. In this way, she avoided the mistake of her husband, Peter III, who did not stage coronation ceremonies. He either postponed them or didn't care about them during his six-month reign, ignoring the good advice of Frederick the Great to the effect that such a ceremony was absolutely necessary in Russia. At the coronation, Catherine was invested in the symbols of power, the imperial regalia, the crown, the mantle, the orb and scepter, in this way, making it clear that she ruled as sovereign empress of the realm. She paid particular attention to the imperial crown. Following her instructions, the court jeweler, Pausier, fashioned a lavish crown that weighed nearly five pounds and in somewhat altered form was worn at all subsequent coronations with many pearls, 2,500 diamonds, and over 5,000 other precious gems. Uh, and this was also shown off. Uh, this was not something uh, that, was, uh, that was secret. Uh, and so uh, we see in the portraits, and many, many portraits are produced at this time to assert Catherine's right and her, uh, her, her sense of, uh, of occupying a position far above uh, the multitude of being an empress by nature, by uh, disposition, if not by, by blood. Now, uh, this, uh, this uh, portrait uh, of Antropov uh, puts the regalia on proud display. Uh, here we can see the lavish, uh, the lavish crown uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Catherine is, uh, is wearing, the, the new one. Uh, which uh, the enormous weight of it was always a great hardship for the emperors because, uh, of course, the, um, the coronation service was very long and, and involved a long procession away, and wearing five pounds on your head wasn't, wasn't too easy. Uh, then we have the, um, uh, uh, the orb, the scepter with the ruby at the end, uh, but it's interesting right to the neck. This is the European style crown. Uh, it's based on the European style crown introduced by Peter the Great when he crowned Catherine I. Uh, and here you see at the side, some of this is cut off in the slide because there are more. There are three 17th century crowns here uh, in the form of the Manamach cap. Uh, so in, by putting these there, she is emphasizing the succession, the historical succession, uh, which uh, takes place symbolically, uh, if not uh, through pure uh, heredity. Okay, um, now th this uh, portrait, which is kind of a, a next one, uh, kind of a composite originally by the Swedish um, painter Rosalind, but she didn't like the face. Catherine was very particular how she was presented. And uh, eventually it was replaced by a face based on, uh, on uh, Rokotov. Uh, again, we see this time we see her in the uh, small crown, uh, which had been designed for women, the women uh, who ruled. Uh, this is the... Uh, uh, she's wearing the sash of the... Uh, um, uh, uh, of the order of uh, of, of, of St. George, uh, the, uh, uh, the triumphal. Uh, this order had been established only after she came to the throne in 1769, and it is a military order. 
It, and it was uh, always something that the uh, various czars tried to get, and of course they were awarded it, but uh, uh, it involved some kind of a military uh, connection. And we see again, here she's pointing to the crown uh, and the orb, uh, showing herself in pu- full display. Uh, and this is, the, uh, of course, the mantle uh, display uh, showing her uh, c- uh, completely in possession of the symbols of power after she is blessed. Mythification served to elevate the empress, uh, to provide uh, the, for the, the empress uh, and create, uh, provide legitima- legitimation and, and create distance between the ruler and subjects that both glorified and justified her absolute power, and also, in many respects, uh, 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 convinced him, her to, moved her to achieve prodigies herself. In the manner of the Baroque, odes and allegories lifted her into the company of the gods, created an image of a human of a higher order. And today I'd like to focus on three areas of her activity as these we use to exalt her as empress and demigod. First, the enlightenment of the people and the promotion of science. Second, the development of the law. And third, the expansion of empire. First, enlightenment. Minerva, of course, was not only a military goddess, but the goddess of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, and uh, as Minerva, uh, Catherine would embody the 18th century dedication to the advancement of science and education. Uh, the poet and polymath uh, Michael Lomonosov greeted her at her accession. Sciences celebrate now. Minerva has ascended the throne. Uh, fireworks presented Catherine at Moscow University after the coronation uh, as the bringer of peace and the protector of wisdom. Uh, and uh, Moscow University expressed its recognition in a ceremonial book by gloriously putting aside weapon and, and battle. The Russian Minerva turns her most gracious gaze on the university and mercifully deigns to assist its growth. The festivities continued after the crowning, dramatizing Catherine in her role of moral instructor. The dawning golden age would not only bring justice rule and prosperity, but the instruction of the people in virtue under the guidance of a benevolent monarch. The golden age was pictured as a time of honest and responsible behavior when the population would learn civic virtue. And this was the theme of the extraordinary street masquerade staged in January during Shrovetide. The program booklet was entitled Minerva Triumphant, in which the vileness of the vices and the glory of the virtues are presented. The floats satirize stupidity and ignorance, drunkenness, deceit, arrogance, and prodigality. The masquerade was combined with extensive popular amusements, games, dances, puppet shows, and magicians. Although it took the forms of early modern carnival, Catherine's masquerade in the streets used popular forms to display a moral transformation ordained from the throne. Minerva Triumphant presented the myth of transformation in terms of the moral education of the populace. A cavalcade of dwarfs and giants, satyrs, drunkards, and fools concluded with the figures of Vulcan and Jupiter and then a parade of the virtues accompanying Minerva herself. 
the Korah, this is written by leading poets at the time, ended with invocations of Estrella, the virgin goddess of justice, and the harbinger of the age of gold. In Catherine's Enlightenment scenario, knowledge and reason were to help the monarch overcome the flaws of humanity. The masquerade thus portrayed what would become Catherine's Enlightenment version of the absolute state. Peter the Great had replaced the antinomy, the 17th century antinomy, sin, salvation, uh, with worthless, useful, a utilitarian uh, change. Uh, And Catherine reframed the antinomy uh, as vice-virtue, with virtue defined in civic terms, in stoic terms. The empress saves her people from the despotism of her predecessor and transforms them into citizens through education. But she does not redeem their sins, nor is she concerned for her own. She and her elite disport themselves in a firmament beyond the judgment of ordinary mortals, where personal probity and biblical morality had no special value. And to focus exclusively on her private life and antics is to assign to them an importance it did not have at the time and to project our own contemporary obsessions on the past. Catherine encouraged science, mounting major expeditions for the study of Russia and bringing important European scholars to serve at the Academy of Sciences. She established a system of secondary schools through the empire following the Austrian example. She also participated in in the Enlightenment, as you know, the philosoph on the throne. She corresponded with uh, other philosophs. She composed works on law, government service, treatment of serfs, history, and manners. Uh, She founded her own journal, uh, printing articles in the didactic spirit of 18th century letters, and she allowed other journals to come into Existence to debate with her, showing a spirit of tolerance, but of course tolerance within limits. She wrote children's books and an operatic drama which she entitled The Early Reign of Oleg in Imitation of Shakespeare Without the Observance of the Usual Rules of the Theater. And she, her collected works fill 12 large volumes. The second area where Catherine pursued the myth of supreme godlike ruler was that of the laws. Uh, And it was the persona of legislatrix who brought the benefits of reason to her subjects through the instrumentality of the laws that was Catherine's most striking incarnation in the first years of her reign. In 1767, she summoned the commission to codify the law in Moscow Uh, The commission consisted of deputies from the estates, the nobility, townspeople, state peasants, and also deputies from what she called the non-Russian tribes. The instruction, the nakaz, which she composed to guide them, was probably the most significant document of her reign. It consisted of precepts borrowed from Enlightenment writers, particularly Montesquieu and the Italian philosopher Cesar Beccaria, and the effort at codification showed her as Astrea, realizing justice, bringing the age of gold. Uh, one scholar has written, the Nakaz, like the entire state ideology, entered the sphere of myth and fulfilled a mythological function. 
It was an attribute of the monarch establishing universal justice and creating harmony in the world. Catherine gave an entirely new presentation to the myth of universal justice and the age of gold. This was not to be the Christian justice of the pious monarch or or Astraea defeating forces of dissension identified with Satan. Catherine takes on the image of legislatrix who realizes the welfare of the subjects by introducing legal norms found in the writings of the West. She thus gave a new interpretation to the myth of empire. If Peter took on the aspect of Augustus, the military leader, Catherine also appeared as a successor to Numa and Solon and Marcus Aurelius, a sovereign who embodied wisdom as well as military leadership. Her exemplar was not the sun king, but the philosopher king. Voltaire described the Nakaz as the finest monument of the age. Frederick the Great said it was, the, it was worthy of a great man and concluded that, quote, we have never heard of any female being a lawgiver. This glory was rever- reserved for the Empress of Russia. Catherine's Nakaz was a product of Enlightenment thought, spelling out universal norms for the deputies to choose in order to devise appropriate statutes for Russia. The end of monarchy, Article 13, declared was, quote, not to deprive the people of their natural liberty, but to correct their actions in order to attain the supreme good. The laws ought to be framed as to secure the safety of every citizen as much as possible. That was Article 33. Article 34 was the equality of the citizens consists in this, that they all should be subject to the same laws. And it's no accident that the Nakaz was banned from circulation in France. The Nakaz evokes the image of paradise. Article 521 declares that God forbid that after this legislation is finished, any nation on earth should be more just and consequently should flourish more than Russia. Article 521 expresses the expectation that the codification would make the people of Russia the most happy of any on earth. The works of art and literature uh, that celebrated this uh, carried on this theme, a famous painting of Dmitry Levitsky, an allegory uh, which was reproduced in many engravings, shows Catherine standing before the throne, flanked by Minerva and Mars, her right hand extended towards the open book, the Nakaz. The allegory places Catherine in the context of classical myth, showing her to be the founder, renewing Russia by incorporating Rome. Literary works extolled her in the same way. Michael Hraskov's allegorical novel, Numa, or Flourishing Rome, published in 1768, expanded on this theme using the figure of Numa, the lawgiver, to glorify Catherine as one whose laws would make Russia into a flourishing Rome. Karaskov portrayed Numa as a, as a savior of his people in other lands. His laws would bring truth triumphant, virtue rejoicing, and drive all the vices out. The host of such sacrifice or self-interest in the cause of altruistic legislation, however, proved ill-founded. The deputies all sought to advance their own particular interests, and, uh, their, and the humanitarian sermons of Catherine left them unmoved. Catherine continued to believe, however, that her didactic purpose had been achieved. 
The instruction, she was convinced, brought unity of rules and discussions, and the deputies learned, quote, something of the will of the legislator and to act according to it. And in this sense, she was right. The assertion of legal principles from the throne established an ideal and a measure for the establishment of respect for the law and the observance of legal norms in Russia. Future jurists looked to the example she provided, and during her reign, there were cases where the norms expressed in the instructions were cited as having the effect of law by officials. Uh, and Catherine's own legislation was of great significance for Russia's institutional development. Her local government reform provided function institutions, functioning institutions for the first time for Russia's provinces and districts, chosen in part by noble elections, uh, creating institutions that had not been, uh, not existed before. In 1785, she issued a charter to the Russian nobility, which provided the noblemen with rights and privileges, the first group in Russian history that had, ev- that had any rights at all. The third area, and the most spectacular perhaps, is imperial expansion. The series of decisive victories for Russia's land and sea forces in the, war, war, the two wars against the Ottoman Empire enhanced the feeling of mutual admiration and dependence between Catherine and her leading military servitors. The successes of Russia's armies and the spectacular victory over the Ottoman fleet at Chesma by Russian ships under Catherine's favorite, uh, Alexei Orlov, in on June 24, 1770, established Russia as a naval power on the Black Sea and capable of moving into the Mediterranean. It was particularly striking uh, because uh, Alexei Olof apparently had never commanded a ship before. Uh, he was, uh, he was uh, doing it for the first time. Uh, and this was celebrated again and again. Uh, and here we see Heckert's uh, painting, uh, of the burning of the, uh, which is in the exhibition, uh, of the uh, Turkish fleet. Uh, those of you who read the card know that this whole thing was staged, that uh, he, had, he had depicted the burning, uh, but Catherine said it was wrong, it wasn't realistic, and turned it back. And so they set a, a ship afire uh, so he could, uh, he could paint it, and that one apparently uh, appealed to her. Uh, it was celebrated by allegories, too, uh, and uh, uh, this very striking one by Heinrich uh, Buchholz uh, in 1781. Here we see Peter the Great, who is looking upon the scene uh, with admira- looking at St. Petersburg, and Catherine is always trying to show herself as Peter's successor following the utilitarian pattern. Uh, above him, Kronos, uh, Father Time, points to uh, glory. Uh, and here, uh, the uh, Russian troops uh, are coming back uh, victorious. So you have a, a kind of triumphal, uh, triumphal march um, to, uh, into St. Petersburg. The Peter the Great statue is, is there. I'm not sure. It was before it was unveiled, so I'm not exactly sure exactly um, which uh, this was long after the battle that uh, the, the statue went up, so I'm not sure exactly uh, how this how this happened. But at any rate, uh, you're having uh, a Petrine triumph into uh, into Peter's city 
St. Uh, St. Uh, Petersburg. Uh, another very interesting allegory. Oh, well, no, here's another one. This is uh, before this. This is, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but this is the screen that we ha- have uh, in the, actually, yeah, here we can see it, uh, with Minerva um, decorating uh, Prince Olof. Uh, Catherine is actually Minerva here. Uh, and uh, this is on, on his victory uh, on, uh, uh, at uh, uh, Chesma, the decisive vi- victory which gave Russia the dominance. And here's another one by Stefano Torelli. Uh, and here we see uh, Catherine being born uh, in the air, floating along as Minerva. Uh, and here we see the generals uh, who led the Russian troops at, at this time. Uh, and below here we see Tartar women, well, uh, they're Tartars with very fair skin, but they're wearing Tartar-type clothing, uh, and they're clearly quite happy to be under Russian domination. Uh, the, uh, uh, again, the tendency is to, is to create national identity by clothing and not by features, uh, which uh, the Russian uh, artists uh, and the foreign artists really didn't know very well. And this is presumably at the edge of the Black Sea, which now was coming under Russian, uh, Russian control. Uh, and a wing up here in the air uh, from the Empyrean, uh, we see a winged victory uh, crowning uh, Catherine with a laurel and above glory uh, um, blowing her, uh, the greatness of her achievement. Uh, and this is called the victory of... Catherine the Great over the Tartars, the victory of the Empress herself. Uh, and then there, you've seen the silver tray there. That, uh, so it, it became a, a motif uh, that was everywhere in the early 17th, in the 1760s, the silver tray, beautiful silver tray, uh, given, uh, this was given by the Moscow merchantry to the Grand Duke Paul and his first wife, Natalia Alexeyevna. In 1774, the Treaty of Kuchuk Kanarji, uh, which was the, the major um, treaty of the 18th century for Russia in regard to the southern regions, acquired the right for Russian subjects for the first time to trade and to navigate on the Black Sea. Uh, and uh, this was uh, a right that was pre- uh, preserved up until the Crimean War in 1855, and it was one of the, uh, the great disgraces of the Crimean War that, rich, that uh, Russia lost this, uh, this right. There was g- very good feeling between Catherine and the nobility, but the feeling was considerably dimmed by the rebellion led by the Cossack Emilian Pugachev, the massive uprising among the Ural Cossacks, Bashkirs, and national groups spread to the peasantry of central Russia in 1773 and 1774. Though the uprising was defeated, it revealed the nether side of the age of gold, the resentment uh, of the ensurfed population toward the noblemen who composed the westernized administration and culture of Petrine Russia. The expansion into the south uh, into what the region which was now called New Russia brought the Crimea also into the uh, empire. Uh, it isn't at the time of this, uh, this trade, but it, it would shortly be. Uh, and uh, it's called New Russia because it's supposed to be renovated Russia. Uh, and uh, the, uh, a Russia recreated 
by Catherine. It was portrayed as ancient Rome, and after the Treaty of Cuchu Canaggi, an accession they owed, uh, proclaimed, when we turn our gaze from the West, loud fame flying there, voices of thought that the Russian state has spread out like ancient Rome. An ode to Catherine of 1772 declared that Russia has soared with greatness like Rome in its flourishing days and extended the limits of its territories. Uh, And Catherine had enormous pride about uh, the size of uh, Russia. Uh, She's talked about it all the time. The Charter of the Nobility opens with the enumeration of the titles to 38 provinces and lands under her uh, rule, including the Crimea. And the other thing that develops very rapidly at this time is cartography. Uh, And here you see uh, the map you saw uh, saw downstairs uh, with, uh, with the triumphs of of Elizabeth, Catherine, and uh, Peter uh, listed on the side uh, and showing how the empire spread out. These maps uh, under the, uh, created under the Academy of Science reflect a growing sense of territorial consciousness that, Russia's, uh, that, that Russia existed as, as a state, as an empire, uh, and had its own territory that had to be shown in maps. And there are local maps, many of them with beautiful allegories in it, uh, also uh, created at this, uh, this time. This one is 1783. Uh, the expansion also uh, led to what uh, one may call an ethnographic consciousness. Catherine is the empress and the ruler of savage uh, peoples, what has been called the ethnographic myth of empire. Uh, thus, the academician Heinrich Storch boasted of the ethnographic variety in 1797, commenting that, quote, no other state on earth contained such a variety of inhabitants, Russians and Tatars, Germans and Mongols, Finns and Tungus, all living in immense territory in the most varied climates. And he said that this is a most rare phenomenon, and one seeks in vain another example in the history of the world. And discovering the ethnographic variety in Russia was one of the results of Catherine's academic uh, academy expedition. The German scholar Johann Georgi uh, studied the national groups of Russia, and from 1776 to 1780, he published the German version of his landmark four-volume, and I quote, description of all nations of the Russian Empire, their way of life, religion, customs, dwellings, clothing, and other characteristics. Georgi also contended that the Russian Empire was the most diverse of empires. Hardly any other state in the world possesses such a great variety of different nations, survivals of peoples, and colonies as the Russian state, he wrote. And, of course, the variety of empire was also presented in visual statements. The illustrations to Georgi's book gave a sense of the variety and color of the native costumes. Uh, And Catherine also uh, insisted that porcelain figures be made to illustrate uh, these uh, these, um, various types. And you can see here uh, the porcelain figures. You can see uh, there's a Kamchatkin Kamchatkin here and and, uh, a... uh, um, Estonian, uh, a, a, a Tartars, uh, and the distinguishing feature in all of their cases is the dress. 
Uh, aside from the beards, there's really nothing much else uh, uh, to distinguish them and the hair hairstyle. Again, the dress is, the, uh, is a distinction of national uh, identity. Uh, the one nationality that Georgi did not include in his book and did not include in the uh, porcelain figures uh, was the Russians. No one knew how to, and still doesn't, no one knows now how to identify what constitutes Russians. Catherine's method of rule in the new territories was to co-opt native elites and to assimilate them into the Russian nobility, continuing a process of broadening and diversifying the imperial elites. Uh, the Tartar aristocracy in the south was introduced to this, and they all become part of the greater Europeanized Russian nobility. Uh, the personal devotion to the sovereign and the adoption of her westernized culture became the principal bond uniting the various nationalities of empire. Again, dress and appearance played a central role in delineating the uh, groupings at the imperial court, uniformity of dress, and uh, Catherine uh, really would put uh, make sure of the unitar- uh, uniformity of, of dress. Let's see if we can get a picture on there. And here we see one of the elements on this. This is Catherine uh, wearing uh, the kokoshnik, of course, the kokoshnik with pearls, which, uh, which is the peasant style, to, uh, with uh, the kokoshnik with pearls. Uh, this is the peasant style kokoshnik uh, form uh, that indicated Russian. It's also a device that's used on Russian uh, Orthodox churches of the 17th uh, century. Um, it was a caution usually of red felt and gold, uh, dark red felt and gold with gems set in it. Uh, and it became the standard attire for uh, women attending important formal occasions during the court uh, in the 19th, uh, 19th century. And here we have a picture of the um, uh, of a a court uh, procession uh, at the time, actually at the time of Nicholas II's majority cer- uh, ceremonies, and uh, you can see the uh, here the the tiara style uh, and the Russian style dress combined with a uh, uh, with um, Western style uh, evening gowns. While of course all the men are in military uniform. Catherine also introduced, as you know, the uh, neoclassicism as a form of, uh, uh, of identification uh, with, uh, with Rome. And uh, here, uh, I'm just going to go over this quickly because most of you have heard about this. This is the Academy of Arts on the Neva, uh, which uh, was built at the very beginning of, uh, of uh, her reign by the French architect Lamotte. Uh, Uh, this is uh, Pavlovsk, uh, and uh, the, here we have the uh, uh, the, um, the the, um, the style of the uh, of the of the of the time, the architecture of Palladio, uh, and uh, which um, uh, which uh, Charles Cameron, the Scottish architect, brought to uh, uh, brought to Russia, uh, and. Um, then we have Potemkin's, and here we have uh, his, uh, her lover, the picture from downstairs, uh, uh, Grigory uh, Potemkin, her lover and the leader of the uh, expansion into the uh, south. Uh, and for 
uh, for, no wait, I, I've gotten it backwards, that's quite clear. This is, this is, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is the Torahite palace uh, that she built for uh, uh, Prince uh, Potemkin. This is the way it looked in 1797. It doesn't look anything like this anymore uh, because there have been various additions that have been put on and uh, uh, the interiors have been completely cha- changed. This is uh, the, 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 the palace that she built for, particularly for uh, Potemkin, and it was open, uh, Starov's palace uh, that was... Uh, uh, that was uh, built in the 1790s, shortly before Potemkin's death. It later became the place where the State Duma met in the uh, in the early 20th century. And now we're back at uh, at uh, Pavlovsk, which became she built for Paul, but really became the uh, the palace that uh, uh, that was inhabited by her daughter-in-law uh, Maria Fyodorovna. After Russia, the Russo-Turkish War, Ru- Russia's expansion to the south was gl- uh, glorified uh, in poems and literature, uh, and uh, Potemkin and Catherine uh, began to invoke Greek precedents. They began to see the, uh, the resurrection of the Greek empire, the so-called Greek project. Uh, and uh, in 1774, a school for foreign youths was founded in Petersburg for young Greek men, and 1777 was moved to the newly acquired Kherson on the Black Sea because Russia saw itself as a rebuilder of the Greek uh, Empire. This would be centered in in Constantinople. Uh, the literary historian Andrei Zorin wrote, the Crimea possessed great symbolic capital for Russia. It could represent at once Christian Byzantium and classical Hellas. Uh, but it was certainly more classical than Byzantine. Greek names were given to the sites in the new territory, Herson uh, after the Greek Hersonis, Odessa after Odysseus, Taurus, the Greek name for the district of Crimea. The Greek project is a striking example of what can be described as mythical thinking. Catherine and Potemkin clearly envisioning Russia's future as the unfolding of a myth rooted in the past. Uh, they want to, uh, they, and, and they wa- expected uh, that Russia would become the, uh, the protector of this. Uh, and we see here the, this wonderful uh, painting here uh, of, uh, of Ale- uh, Alexander and Constantine, uh, Alexander cutting the Gorgian knot. Uh, so he would be the successor to uh, Alexander the Great and rule, uh, uh, rule uh, Russia, and Russia would rule Asia, as the oracle promised anyone who cut the Gorgian knot. Uh, and Constantine uh, after the Byz- uh, Byzantine emperor. So this was, and Catherine, of course, was busy educating Alexander at this time. Uh, and then the painting of 1783... And this is the painting of 1783 in the, in the painting by uh, Brompton. And then the painting of the, uh, uh, the next painting uh, of them as young men in the uh, temple of Pindar uh, with Min- Catherine, the ever-present uh, image of Catherine there as Minerva. 
and here dedicating themselves to the, the goals of neoclassicism, the imperial goals of um, uh, neoclassicism in the spirit of virtue and valor. This is a painting by Johann Lampe. Now, it was not sufficient, however, to proclaim the myth in art and rhetoric. The performative character of Russian monarchy uh, dictated that the realization of the imperial myth be demonstrated in constant ceremonial affirmation. And in 1787, Catherine provided such affirmation by bringing her scenario to the Russian provinces and the recently acquired New Russia. Her trip took her through the provinces uh, of European Russia to Kiev, down the Dnieper to New Russia, the journey was the apotheosis of Catherine, a lavish and extended enactment of myth showing the attainment of the general good of the population this, in 1787. The medal struck for the trip carried the inscription, the route to the beneficial. The administrative authorities in Petersburg sent down decrees to construct a spectacle of happiness along the route. Crowds of happy people dressed in clean new clothing Singers in their best attire, abundant markets, garlands of flowers would provide pleasant scenes for the eyes of the empress. Catherine believed that such displays would refute foreign contentions that Russia was a barbaric power and a great desert. Everything that did not please her imagination had to be removed from sight. In Moscow, in the midst of famine, beggars were driven out of the city so as not to spoil the empress's initial impressions. The spectacle of happiness and transformation was presented to an audience of court dignitaries and foreign envoys of Britain, France, and Austria, including the Habsburg Emperor Joseph. On the way to and from the territories, Catherine participated in staged demonstrations of mutual fealty between herself and the Russian uh, nobility, uh, the opportunity to reciprocate uh, they had uh, with their own feelings of love. She herself wore a special holiday travel costume uh, that you see in the re uh, rather realistic painting uh, by uh, Michael uh, Shibanov, uh, where her, she has the orders on her, uh, and she gives a sense of being uh, uh, sort of simple, but at the same time uh, elegant. The objective of the journey, the southern region was presented as a spectacular confirmation of the motifs of conquest and transformation. After a sojourn in Kiev, during which she worshipped and took communion at the Monastery of the Caves, Catherine traveled by boat down the Dnieper. This was a voyage not of inspection but of display, comprising a squadron of seven galleys, each provided with an orchestra, 80 ships resembling Roman galleons, and 3,000 troops. Catherine and her entourage up, beheld the spectacle of happiness along the banks that Potemkin had staged. The governor general of Azov and New Russia, of the Crimea, and Yekaterinoslav, the viceroy of the south, all of these Titles were given to Potemkin. Groups of peasants, Cossacks, and townspeople greeted her everywhere. Peter the Great had called Petersburg his paradise. For Catherine, her paradise was to be the south, and she even considered moving the capital there. It was to realize the biblical myth of the garden, and Catherine herself dreamt of such a garden. As she passed through the towns along the Black Sea, she marveled 
at the climate, the vegetation, and the flowers. Before she went to the Crimea, she foresaw the planting of gardens, especially botanical gardens. A member of her suite wrote that the orchards of this region can give an idea of the gardens of paradise. All of this uh, was seen through the myth, the lens of myth, and the, again, the triumph was celebrated uh, with uh, an allegory. And here you see uh, Catherine, uh, uh, Catherine's trip with the people standing on the side, uh, greeting her, uh, and uh, again, uh, you have glory in the heavens, and of course, all the way at the top, uh, Peter the Great in the clouds, looking down in the heavens, looking down approvingly, glory here, blowing her, her uh, honor, and Catherine uh, with, a, uh, with a torch. Uh, and here are the, uh, the various peoples, uh, again, indicated largely uh, by their, their dress. The proverbial Potomkin villages, it seems, were no more than a canard, uh, with several dubious exceptions, the reports from foreign guests, most of whom ha- hardly restrain their skepticism, make no mention of the so-called cardboard sets of flourishing towns. But the orders issued from the capital and Potomkin's feverish preparations leave no doubt about the determination to embellish reality. And the imperial theme was displayed throughout the journey, the fortress at Herson carried the device, the route to Byzantium, the city of Yekaterinoslav was to be Catherine and Potemkin's counterpart to Petersburg, a perfect imperial city to show the monarch's creation of a realm of cultivation and political order in the new Russia. In all of this, Catherine embodied the charisma of empire, the resonance, the radiance of a god of antiquity, She was performing her role in the myth. The question remains about the significance of the myth. Did it inspire these projects, or was it window dressing, public relations, to advance Russia's interests and glorify its images? And historians, of course, are divided on this issue. Um, My answer was both and neither. Uh, Russian imperial mentality or culture dictated that the power and glory of the Russian monarch was to take on the forms of supreme rule, empire, the supreme intellectual justification, the realization of the absolutes, uh, which justified the monarch's great power, attainments, uh, and and the uh, and uh, the ac- uh, by attainments and acquisition. Uh, at the same time, as these mythical forms would inspire ever more superhuman efforts. Uh, And in this respect, Catherine is probably the most resplendent and the most effulgent incarnation of the imperial myth. She promoted uh, science, education, and the law. She introduced local government reforms that provided the means of administering the provinces per century. She acquired vast territories down to the Black Sea and as far west as the Vistula in Poland. I've even mentioned, of course, the uh, annexations in Poland, the division of Poland. All of this was set in a vision of renovation, of making Russia paradise, the ideal. The achievements were remarkable, but the costs were great. The grandeur of her court, the glory of military triumphs, the warm relationship with the nobility were based 
on extension of the rights of the landlords over their serfs. She gave thousands of state peasants into the service of of favorites. She extended serfdom to Little Russia, Ukraine. The power of the landlords over the serfs continued to grow. It was many such there was one of many such episodes in the history of Russia, the progress and flourishing of the Russian state coming at the cost of the subjugation and the impoverishment of the Russian people. The untold misery and subjection of the Russian people persisted alongside the beckoning illusions of equality, love, and happiness. Thank you.